Welcome to the Reflective Teacher Podcast, brought to you by the Jewish United Fund of Chicago. I'm Martha Weil, and together with my real-life co-teacher and co-host, Lindsay Elliott, we're bringing you interviews with experts in early childhood education. We hope these stories will inspire you and give you that aha moment that we as teachers find so refreshing and clarifying. Over the course of this episode, we hope you'll reflect and make connections that will help you bring intention and motivation to your classroom each day. Today's episode is all about managing challenging behavior in the classroom. Lindsay and I talked to Eileen Flicker, who is co-author of the book, Guiding Children's Behavior, Developmental Discipline in the Classroom. We talk about how teachers can use observation and reflection to be proactive when it comes to challenging behavior rather than reactive. So without any further ado, here's our interview with Eileen Flicker. Hello, this is Eileen. Hi, this is Martha Weil and Lindsay Elliott. Hi, Martha. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Um, Okay, so to get started, why don't you just give us a little bit of like your background story um, and how you got into doing what you do now um, and just any information you want to share about yourself. Okay, well, um, I'd like to think that my career in education began as an 11-year-old babysitter. Um, <laughs> I definitely approached my task with young children um, very seriously, even even at that young age, and it always had a lot of, um, it provided a lot of joy for me, and I felt that working with children just came very natural to me. So, um that, that's where it started, and uh, I went to college thinking I was going to be a clinical psychologist and even began graduate school with that intention, and while I was at the um, working at the Center for Infants and Parents, now called the Rita Gold Center at Teachers College, Columbia University, um, I, I began to think that I can help children and families as an educator and not necessarily as a psychologist. So although my first two masters are in psychology, developmental psychology and educational psychology, I I veered into um, early childhood education and eventually elementary and secondary education as well. That's awesome. Um, And then how did you come to writing the book, Guiding Children's Behavior? Yeah, so um, my co-author, Dr. Janet Andron Hoffman, and I were graduate students at Columbia University. We were doctoral students together, and so our, our years together began studying studying together and supporting each other through that dissertation process. And when it was over, we realized that we had something special going on and we wanted to continue that collaborative relationship. So we, we consulted for many years together. And in our work, we, we came to see so many examples of inappropriate discipline being administered to children by very well-meaning um, educators as well as parents, and our our uh, theory um, of how children can be uh, educated and how they can learn really developed out of our work in in school. 
That's so interesting um, about inappropriate methods of discipline. Can you talk like a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so I see a lot of practice of um, commonly used strategies that just don't work. Um, so various forms of time out, even though in New York State it's it's outlawed, teachers can't use the word time out oh, in their only childhood education. But it's still done in various ways by sending the child to the director's office or the principal's office. Yes. So any kind of sending the child away is the same thing. Um, it's basically not addressing the child saying I can't look at you I can't deal with you get away get get out of my sight that, that that's just one example um, but it, it's a lack of planning for what's going to happen we most of the time when children act out in the classroom we're not surprised we know it's going to happen because we've mm-hmm. seen it happen before and so if we spend more time being proactive in our approach to discipline rather than just reactive when the child misbehaves then we're much more successful so it's really knowing who the student is who the child is and what are those um experiences that are more challenging for the child that lead to certain kinds of behavior when we when we know it when we can we can often predict it and and the goal is to then do something about it and preempt it um by not putting children in those positions to repeatedly engage in the same misbehavior yes yeah and before we talk a little bit more about like the kind of way to do that and the way to be preemptive. Um, in your book, you talk about um, how a little bit about like the history of um, just different perspectives on this and like different parenting styles and how teachers are spending more of their time maybe with classroom management rather than like content. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how we got to that? Well, what we've seen, certainly in recent years, is more and more parents uh, being reluctant to to set limits mm-hmm. and to simply say no to a child. Uh, huh. There are actually parents who never use the word no, and there are schools that don't ever use the word N-O, um, and I think <laughs> that's... Um, you know, that's gone a little too far from what I call a no environment, an O environment, where a teacher is repeatedly correcting a child, and that is certainly not the environment that we're looking for, but um, letting a child know what those limits are, what's okay and what's not okay, is vitally important. So we see with families, certainly in the years um, from... Uh, from when there was a, a parent at home all the time to the time we are now where majority of families are either single families or both fam- both parents are working outside the home. Right. Um, and, and I think um, that that has led some parents to think that my quality time with my child means I have to say yes to everything and I can't set those limits. I want that 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 limited time with my child to be positive so I don't want the child to feel badly by me setting limits. And that is really quite dangerous. Right. And I don't think I'm using that word as an exaggeration. It is 
dangerous when a child does not have clear boundaries because it's within those boundaries that all learning and development take place. And what we see more and more these days are children coming into schools without those limits set, without a sense of boundaries. And those mm-hmm. children actually have anxiety from um, being in charge. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, children are yeah. not supposed to be in charge. And uh, that that is really quite frightening uh, when the child does not get those limits that the child is really seeking. Uh, a child has a right to test those limits. We see that as a um, as normative behavior. But then that child would expect some limits to be set, and that provides a lot of comfort. And it's, it goes in hand in hand with love. Love and limits are, are really hand in hand. The same thing. I love that. Let's get into a little bit about what developmental discipline is. Sure. So a developmental discipline is an approach. It's not a specific formula, um, such as uh, behavior management, which is, you know, you reinforce to increase the likeliness of the behavior, and then we expect that behavior to, to continue. Developmental discipline is more of a broader approach that focuses on being proactive, or preventative, and and that means we spend a lot of time knowing who the child is, and I say child and not children, because we're not treating the kids as a class of children, Mm -hmm. and I do hear that I have a great class this year, I don't have a great class this year, (laughs) I try to help teachers think about individual children, discipline should all be individualized, and um, think about What do we know about this child? What do I already know about this child? And based on what I know about this child and what I know about child development in general, what is uh, typical behavior at this particular age, I make an individualized decision based on all the information I I have. Um, I think about developmental discipline as having four broad principles. One is observation. So we encourage teachers and and administrators to observe first before we just go to that strategy that we've been using or that worked with another child. Let's observe. Let's understand when the behavior difficulty transpires, uh, what time of the day, uh, which day of the week. We start seeing all the patterns. So we observe. That's very, very important. Um, We also engage in teacher self-reflection. So instead of just looking at, oh, this child doesn't do this or this child always does that, let's look inward and say, what am I bringing to the table? How is my tone or my affect or my curriculum and instruction, how is that impacting the child? So we take big ownership on the pieces that we can control. Can't control another human being, but we can control our own interactions. So principle one is observation. Principle two is teacher self-reflection. Principle three is individualized intervention. One size does not fit all. So based on our information about what we've observed about the child and what we've reflected upon in terms of the classroom learning environment and what what the teacher brings, we, we make a decision, an intervention that is right for this particular child in this particular situation. 
and we reevaluate that and we watch it and observe over and over and usually when the intervention is individualized like this it's much much more effective so that's the third principle individualized intervention and the fourth principle is so key it's building relationships and community and this again is the preventative piece this is about whether we call it a social emotional learning or social skills groups or um, just however that well there's many ways we can do that and, and the latest way that I'm learning to build um, the skills that children need to interact with one another is also through yoga and mindfulness mm-hmm. but any any of these ways to um, build this positive and loving and loving learning community um, will prevent a lot of the typical classroom conflicts that we see over and over we should chat about observational skills because I think that that is something um, that has a bit of a barrier to entry for some teachers because we, we sit down with our notepad or whatever like um, form we might have and we do it like one time maybe and we are like well that didn't work um, so how what is what are the steps to a great to great observation maybe over time sure I, I'm glad you talked about uh, this being a barrier or, or challenging mm-hmm. to teachers because that is indeed my experience when I bring the subject up, I know what I know what's going to come back, which is I don't have time. There's only two of us in the classroom. We have right. so many children. We're responsible for so many things. Yes, I, I understand those those tasks right. and why this is so so difficult. Um, I, I'd like to preface this by by saying that my training at, at Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, embedded the concept of observation to do all of our work and so that's my mindset is well how do we know how to teach what to teach how to to individualize it if we're not observing the individual children and knowing um, how they need to learn and what they need to learn and so on right so that is a critical part of our teaching as well as classroom management and so it's it's very very important that teachers develop the skill which I'm acknowledging is not easy but the way I like to um, help teachers get to um, the place where they're observing on a regular basis and it's really integral to their day-to-day teaching is to offer up a bunch of different observation techniques and 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 recognize that the the observation technique that I use that works for me personally may not be the best one for you and Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily one right way to do it so I may like writing narratives and I do personally like Mm -hmm. writing narratives so I like to write and and record all the information I record everything I see the child doing and saying and um and and so I like that kind of rich detail um that said um that's takes it takes a lot of skill to be able to to, to write so much yeah. especially as i'm managing multiple tasks in in, in the classroom totally. um, so in, in, in all fairness a really good narrative description uh, means that my teachers and my, my co-teachers and i take turns and and maybe my administrator comes in and relieves 
so I can write a five-minute narrative observation. And so we have a system in place for that to happen. Right. If that is not available, then we know, you know, checklists are very easy. A checklist is also only as good as as how well the items are written. Right. Sometimes checklists are very ambiguous, and then they, they don't really provide us much information. So a well-written checklist, either that you develop yourself or that you find. And we have a couple of checklists in, in um, the developmental discipline book. Right. Um, but then another simple thing, maybe a frequency chart. Maybe, and and I'll try, it's not really a chart, it's like a tally sheet. A so tally. maybe we just kind of get an idea of how often does this behavior happen. And so it's simply marking a tally, and that's very easy to do while you're multitasking. Um, I also say that we have technology now that allows our, our, our observations, the doc, excuse me, the documentation of our observations to be recorded and not just written. So if your school allows for use of a tablet or a cell phone, you can simply record your anecdote or your observation Mm -hmm. into your phone or or a tablet and then transcribe that later into some sort of system for keeping track of it. So I I think it's really important that we explore a lot of different tools um, and and teachers should find their best the best one that they like the most. Um, but I will say that uh, an important skill to develop that I, I do like to practice, and I do this with um, all, all the college classes I teach and certainly workshops that I lead on this topic, is practicing distinguishing between objective observation and my inferences, judgments, mm. opinions, and questions. Yes. So we actually have a chart in the book. It's really very simple. It's a T-chart. And we simply watch a video or if we have the opportunity to watch live children. And we just practice recording what we're seeing and leaving out those descriptive terms like the child was aggressive. Or even as simple as he threw the ball at her on purpose. Right. Well, that, that's filled with inference. Exactly. Okay, so we can say the child picked up the ball, looked towards the other child, and threw the ball in the direction of the other child. But but knowing the motivation, that's an inference. So we have to be very, very careful um, to build the skill of objective observation versus inferences. You talk about helping children understand like the ramifications of of their actions. Um how how do we get there? Yeah, so um, we we speak of uh, natural and logical consequences right. to behavior. So natural consequences are we don't have to do anything. Those those consequences will happen naturally. So if a child is unkind to peers, the natural consequence will be that the other children are reluctant to play with that. A first child. So right. we don't have to necessarily, you know, shame that child and um, reprimand that child over and over. We just point out what has happened to the child so they see that this happens naturally. But sometimes um, we don't want to wait for that to happen. I would think of um, a child rocking back on the chair. So uh, mm-hmm. when I was in school, we didn't have these awesome uh, creative chairs that allow children to rock. Um, but the teachers would, would say, if you rock back, you're going to fall and, and, and break your head. So we don't want to wait for that to happen. Um, 
for that natural consequence to happen. So what we want to do as adults is we want to mimic what would happen naturally. And that's what we call a logical consequence. So we want to create something that would be most in line with what happened. So uh, one of the problems we have with our consequences, uh, whether they're really punishments um, or, or consequences um, are they're completely unrelated to the child's behavior and then there's no connect then the child does not make any connection between this consequence slash punishment and the child's own behavior so we want to make sure that that it is somewhat connected to what the child is doing so if if a child is is unkind to another child yeah I would say, I can't let you play with your friends right now. You have hurt your friends, friend or friends. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, you need to play by yourself right now. Now, that almost sounds like a time out, but it's not because the child is not um, assigned to a specific right. chair at a specific location of the room. And the child is also not shamed, okay? Yeah. So I would continue to interact with that child um, and, and show that that child is still loved, but remind that child, um, oh, it looks like, you know, they're playing with, with that lion that you love so much. Um, you know, maybe in a few minutes you'll be ready to play and, and, and be kind to your friends again so I, I, I if, if a child needs to be removed from a situation and I do think that there are times that that has to happen because we have to protect the other children totally. whether it's whether it's from um, uh, verbal or, or, or physical um, aggression we, we need to make sure that that initial child gets the message this is not going to happen the adults in this environment are not letting this happen right Um, so i I think i think we can do that and again continue to interact and continue to help the child see the connection between his or her own behavior and why the child is not allowed right now to play with friends it is so critically important that we look um beyond that external behavior the overt behavior and try to get to know the child a bit and that's what observations can do you may discover you're both uh, baseball fans or you both like trains or you find a way to connect and that connection that relationship there that relationship building piece is so critical especially when you have a child who is significantly challenged. Right. Um, the, the behavior is on the outside, but we know that child is challenged on the inside emotionally and, and, and socially in most cases. Um, so that's one, one important thing is that we make sure um, that we go out of our way um, and not, not in a non an ungenuine way. We have to be really sincere about this, trying to make this connection because yes. kids, kids will know it, you know, right away if, we, if we're not being genuine. But the other piece is that that's what discipline, you know, discipline is part of our learning. It's part of our teaching. So we have to not be frustrated that kids act out. We have to see it as opportunities to help them grow and, and, and develop. And when we're reacting on an ongoing basis, oh, these kids are so hard or I'm, yeah. so, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. Once, when we're 
saying those things, we've got to really take a psychic step back and, and do some soul searching and figure out how do we come back to the table and say, this child who's, I, I call kids like an out-of-the-box child, yeah. a kid who doesn't follow the line very well, a child who, who challenges us, but yeah. it is somehow different. And it's those kids who deserve our patience and who deserve our our, our positive attention and not just attention for their negative behaviors. Totally. What I see when I go into schools is I see a lot of behavior problems totally being um, provoked. Yeah, exacerbated. By, 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 by the adult. Not intentionally. Um, and, <laughs> and here's a classic. We, have, we ask children to sit and listen quietly for too long of a period. That is not natural. Okay, it is it is not natural at the elementary and secondary level either. But right now we're talking about the littlest ones, and we know that they are simply um, th that there is no learning without movement. Montessori taught us that. Piaget taught us that. Vygotsky taught us that. So yet somehow our schools have become these places where we expect children to sit and listen to the teacher that that is not true learning and it certainly sets up so many children for uh behavior difficulties and it's i say set up because a child who needs to move and who's very active who's out of the box that that's not a bad thing um so we have to make sure that our curriculum and instruction is developmentally appropriate which means the times children are expected to sit and listen are minimal Right. And that's a key piece that um, that I work with teachers, especially um, universal pre-K programs in the public schools where there's definitely an elementary-like attitude in the pre-K. And the idea is that academics sitting and listening, copy, doing and worksheet, the work itself is not meaningful. If we're asking children to copy or to uh, to write something over and over again, that's, that, that's not learning. And that's that's not true writing. That's not literacy development. That's not thinking and, and being critical thinkers. Um, and so if we're providing uh, a lot of the day with those kinds of experiences, we are absolutely increasing the behavior problems in our classroom. And I am seeing that more and more. Yes. And I think another part of the day um, is like anytime there's a transition can be pretty rough. And I think teachers do need to be really mindful about um, the transitions that they have. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned transitions because transitions in classrooms are typically not planned for. Yeah. We plan the activities, but Ooh. we do not plan the getting from one place to another. And that is where the majority of, of problems happen because <laughs> children who've been forced to sit and listen now have a little freedom. So some take advantage of that. And for the other kids, they just have not been given any instructions what to do other than sit and be quiet. Right. So we know the sit, sit, be quiet, and wait is not something that we should ask children to do for very long. 
Um, even, you know, the ritual of wait, go, lining up to go to the bathroom or lining up to go outside. What's going on while we're waiting? And we can fill that time relatively easy with creative teachers who are playing games during that time, who are singing songs, somehow engaging the children so this waiting is somewhat interactive. It's very, very important. I love that plan, like the idea of planning for your transition. So it's not, and it, and it is so overlooked because like, let's say, like in our school, we um, have had specials in the past that we have to get the kids to. So like maybe there's a, a gym class. And so that's on the agenda. But what's not on the agenda is going from morning meeting to gym class or going from playtime mm -hmm. or snack to gym class. And the transition gets to be quite difficult sometimes. <laughs> it's the line. I feel like, what do you think is a realistic time for them to wait in line? Like a minute? Yeah. What do you yeah, think? yeah. Not more than that. Or, and, and, and but I also know that because we're limited in all the things we have, limited by all the things we have to do, we may have no choice but to have children wait, but that doesn't need to be a passive experience. So it's very important that at least one adult is interacting with the children in, in a thoughtful, meaningful way. Um, let's talk about like a tantrum, uh, something where the child is clearly not in control of um, maybe their actions and emotions. Yeah, so when you see a child, so by the way, if we're talking about a two-year-old and, and a tantrum, it's a very different experience than a five or six-year-old who's out of control. Can you talk so, about that a little bit, like the difference? Because I think, I think that could be helpful too. Yeah, so if we have a toddler um, who is throwing himself on the floor, um, I'm not alarmed. Right. I understand this is normative behavior. It's not the behavior I want to. I want to continue. Right. I want to help this child to develop coping skills, so he doesn't have to throw himself. Doesn't feel like that's the only thing he's got in his toolkit is to throw himself on the floor. But I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm calm. I will make sure that the child does not have anything. To, you know, that he's in a safe place, and I will very often move the class away. So rather than trying to get that child to be quiet or disturbed in circle time or they're playing so nicely here, I'll move the other kids away. And in some cases, the tantrum could be for the uh, audience. We, you know, oh, look, yeah. it all depends. Is it a one-time tantrum or is it an ongoing thing? We mm -hmm. have to, of course, understand what the reason is. Let's assume it's the first-time tantrum. Again, I'd remove the rest of the kids, move them either out into the hallway or a different part of the class, and you have one adult staying there and calmly saying, I'm here for you when you're ready to talk. Talking to a child who is tantruming is uh, a waste of time and will only prolong the tantrum. The child okay. cannot hear you when he's so wrapped up in his emotions. So it's really important that we... Um, engage uh, passively without a lot of emotion, calmly, and again, reassuringly. I'm here for you. I'll wait. And, you know, not you're, wait you're wasting my time or you're missing <laughs> right. recess time or any of those kinds <laughs> of things. I'm here waiting for you. And again, so whatever the, the reason for that behavior will, will be less likely to um, to be repetitive if, if that happens again. So again, a two-year-old, um, that that's not... Un, un, unheard of all, uh, but yeah. we do we do want to be careful that we don't end up um, reinforcing it 
um, yeah. unintentionally mm-hmm. through our behaviors. Um, and that could simply be the whole class is waiting on you. We are where we can't go outside until you come. That's reinforcement because maybe the child is crying out for some attention. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly. We don't know. We don't right. know. Um, let's talk about parent involvement. How can we get parents involved um, in helping us and them manage behaviors um, to help children be successful? Um I feel like a lot of teachers, myself included, find it really hard to get to um, kind of speak with parents, like, candidly about what might be going on with their child. Yeah, well, you know, so the opportunities for the discussion um, depend on how the school has this built in. You know, do we ask families to come and visit with the, with the child? That teacher's college, we called it a developmental visit. Before any child started, that child would come with a parent and the teacher would be there. And it was a chance to interact and get to know each other and have the, those opportunities, uh, parent-teacher conferences. And of course, uh, um, technology has given us a way to communicate with parents in, in less conventional ways. Um, through apps, through video chats, and and there's other ways. So I think we have to be open to any way we can. We have the opportunity to communicate, and certainly if we're having um, a challenge, we, we want to ideally set up that partnership right away. But here's a couple of mistakes that that teachers and educators make uh, with the best of intentions. Is we ask parents a question. We bring parents in when there's a problem, as, as we should. Um, but we ask, is anything going on at home that I should know about? Mm. And so this, and, and when I say that, teachers say, well, I do that all the time. What's the big deal? We're asking what's going on at home. That, that question alone puts a parent on the defense because the parent knows that there is a problem of some sort. You've been called in for this problem or we're talking about it at, at our routine parent-teacher conferences, and they, they, they know you're looking, or they think you're looking to blame them. Parents yeah. are very defensive about their children. It's human nature. If somebody says something about your child, your reaction instinctively will be to put up your guard and be defensive and go back the other way and say, well, who are you to ask me that question? <laughs> who are you to blame it on me? So on, we don't want to get to that point. Um, of putting parents uh, on that. And so building the relationship ahead of time is so important. I try to uh, Mm -hmm. encourage teachers to reach out to families just to say, your child built this three-foot block tower today, and he didn't stop talking about it all day. He was so excited. Here's a picture of it. Just wanted to share. So when teachers communicate with families individually, not just group newsletters and group communications, but on an individual basis about their their individual child, we start building that relationship. So it's really important that we have before we have any conversation about a problem that we have already set the ground for. Um, I think your kid is terrific, and he's such a great asset to this class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other mistake that teachers make is to offer advice when it's not asked. Okay. Because parents aren't ready for it. Yeah, so maybe don't just jump in with what you think should be going on or what you think would be good advice for the family. 
Yeah, and that's tough because we think of ourselves as the experts. We've gone to school. We've been trained. We know children. We work with so many children. We know this is not typical. So we, we, we send this message on one level or another that we're the all-knowing. And, you know, the parent is the screw-up because they have a kid who has a problem. So um, it's so important that in addition to building this relationship through sharing all this positive interactions that you've had with the child, is that you come to a meeting that you have a concern about and you just share your objective observations. You don't editorialize. You don't say, if this was my child, I would do this. Mm -hmm. You don't offer the advice until the parent says, I know, what should I do? That's what you're waiting for. And I love that, too, because I think that that takes a lot of the pressure off me as a teacher um, to figure out, like, oh, what's going on at home, that this is, you know what I mean? Like... Or what should I tell them to do? Yeah, yeah and, and to have all the answers. Yeah. I think that's great to say, like, I'm noticing a couple things. Uh, why, don't, why don't we make a time to chat about what we're noticing in, in class? And then you just tell them what you're noticing. I think that's great. And I think that they, if they, you do have that relationship, they will say, well, what can we do like in a partnership together and want to problem solve with you? When the teacher already says, this, chi- this teacher loves my child, when the, when the parent already trusts you, then that parent will, will get to that place quicker of saying, what can I do? What do, what do you advise? That's, right. what, that's what we want to get to. Um, but it, it's tough. It's really tough as, as an educator uh, to withhold that advice until asked. And mm-hmm. I think, too, you have a great strategy, it seems, um, for talking to parents mm-hmm. about, like, if they want if they want to, if they are partnering with you to figure out what's going on, um, there, I saw a parent observation form that they can take home with them and observe their own child. Is that how that could be used? Absolutely, but I wouldn't offer it until the parent yeah. has already um, let down the guard. Right, right. So we have to get we have to be sensitive, just like we're sensitive to children's needs. We have to be we have to anticipate and be sensitive to parents' needs. And it yeah. is very painful for a parent to hear anything as benign as, you know, your child hit another child today. Okay, right. it's not the end of the world, but that simple statement is very painful. It means I, a parent could interpret that as I failed as a parent and, and feel shame and embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And so we wanna we wanna move away from that as much as we can. I love that. I think that's really important to be sensitive with parents just as you would children. Um, You know, I feel like we've covered like so much here. I feel (laughs) like so much of it is so practical and just really helps you um, have a mindset Mm -hmm. for how to deal with this. Uh, What do you... Like deal with it more intentionally. Yeah. What do you think are just some basic takeaways um, from our conversation that you think people should really um, impl- like kind of try to implement in their own classroom? So, so I, I think the big takeaway about developmental discipline is shifting your focus from reacting to children's misbehavior to being proactive and preventing. Okay. Um, and I think in many, many cases, we can prevent problems. I'm not going to decrease uh, behavior problems 100%, that would not, children learn from their, their missteps, so to speak. So, but the repetitive behavior 
behaviors um, are completely unnecessary because we know it's going to happen. So we can avoid that by observing and, ref- and self-reflecting and then putting an intervention in place that will stop that child from that repetitive behavior. And I would also um, add to this proactive mindset is having tools for yourself for staying calm whatever that is <laughs> whether that's walking in, in the woods at night mm-hmm. or learning to breathe deeply through meditation whatever those tools are a teacher has to come and be able to control that affect um, not a hundred percent of the time but I'd say 99 percent of the time that would be super effective and and the last um, piece that I would add is that this should be a collaborative approach in most cases we have the great luxury and opportunity in early childhood to work closely with Um, Mm co-teachers and that's let's use those resources to brainstorm and share strategies and share our observations what we know about the specific child and I think we'll be much more effective if we approach it intentionally as if I could use your uh, your Mm -hmm. word there Mm -hmm. and um and not just react every time a problem happens I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for chatting with yeah, us. Yeah, this is so this lovely. Is, you're so knowledgeable, <laughs> and like this book is so helpful. I think for laying out a way to handle a lot of this stuff that we deal with every day. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed your conversation and your input, and the two of you. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you're. Um, influencing so many children and families in great ways. Oh, it was really enjoyable for me. So that's our show. If you would like to learn more about Eileen's work and her book, you can head over to www.thereflectiveteacherpodcast.com. That's our website, and on it we post show notes for each episode and resources so you can learn more about each topic we discuss. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our mailing list so you can stay up to date on all things Reflective Teacher Podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Reflective Teacher Podcast or find us on Facebook under the same name. Thanks for listening.